One such element is found here in our text in Revelation chapter 10, namely the seven thunders that John refers to. Let's listen as Pastor Phil shares more. Verse 5 again. The angel who John saw standing on the sea and land, he had one hand, his right hand raised to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that there should be delay no longer. Now the angel took the standard gesture, position, for taking an oath. We even do it today in court. The angel had the little scroll in his left hand. He raised his right hand to heaven. We do that in court. We put our left hand on the Bible. We raise our right hand, and we swear to tell the truth, right? And the idea is that this angel is swearing to God that the mission God has given him will be delayed no longer. Now, God has been delaying this. What is this mission? Well, obviously, we're going to see the beginning of the seven final bold judgments soon. And they're going to be really horrific. Remember now, as we have moved through the tribulation period from start now as we're approaching the finish, the uh, judgments are going to become more and more frequent and more and more intense, like a woman's labor pains. And what is happening is, is the earth is come to a point soon where it's going to be experiencing one cataclysmic judgment after another. Boom, boom, boom. Suddenly, Jesus returns. The kingdom is birthed. And there is peace, just like a woman in travail. The pains get more frequent, more intense, until finally the child is born, then there is peace. And joy, of course. As Jesus said, the, a woman, when she's going through childbirth, as soon as the child is born, the pain ceases, and she forgets the pain for the joy of having a new child. And that's going to be the same with the kingdom age. When it finally gets here, wow, I mean, it's going to be so worth you know, just waiting for this kingdom age to come. But in verse verse 6, uh, it talks about there should be delay no longer. Now, uh, what I wanted to say was that what God has been doing is he's been delaying these final, ultimate judgments, which are going to be pretty horrific. He has been giving people a chance to repent. We've talked about this, all right? Even though God has been judging, he has kind of judged, pulled back, judged, pulled back, given people time to think about what has just happened, giving them time to repent. He wants to save people. The Holy Spirit's going to be very active during this time. Millions upon millions of people are going to get saved during the tribulation period. And so it's going to be a very fruitful time, very painful time, but the earth has gotten, the people of this world have gotten so hard-hearted and dull of hearing, it's going to take something pretty cataclysmic to kind of get their attention. And that's the idea, unfortunately, that man's heart is going to be so hard by this point, God has got to do something pretty, I say spectacular, but in a bad way, to get people's attention because he doesn't want, even at this stage, to send anybody to hell. He wants people to repent and get saved. 
So he has been kind of delaying these final judgments, giving people time to repent. Now the time has come where it's going to be delayed no longer. As Peter said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord is at hand, Peter said. It is going to be coming. Well, we see it here. And in part, this is an answer, I think, to the um, prayers of the saints in chapter 6. Remember the martyrs under the altar? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood and the people of this earth? And the Lord says, just hang in there a little longer till the rest of your brethren are, are martyred. Yeah, God is giving people time, you know. Verse 7, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as declared by his servants, the prophets. Now the seventh angel to blow that trumpet is going to unleash the seven final judgments, which are called the bowl judgments. B-O-W-L, the bold judgments. Uh, they're going to be pouring out God's wrath full strength now. The wrath of God being really poured out. I mean, God's wrath has been being poured out for the first you know, seven seals and seven trumpets. Now it's going to get really bad. If people on the earth thought it was bad up to this point, when the bold judgments hit, it's going to be pretty horrific. Beyond, I think, their wildest dreams. It says in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, the final bold judgments are going to take probably days or probably even months. It's not going to be a one-time deal. One day, boom, it's over with. They're going to happen, you know, pretty quick, but they're going to take days or probably months to finish. And in the days of these final bold judgments, you're going to have what uh, is called here in the, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel. Uh, the mystery of God is going to be finished. Now, hold on to that because that's a, an important idea. Um, the word mystery is the Greek word mysterion. And it doesn't mean a mystery like we think of a mystery. It means something that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but God is revealing to us in the New Testament. There are, I think, 27 different things that are called mysteries. Not that the Old Testament saints didn't have any insights into any of it. They had little bits and pieces, but for the most part, they were blinded to, to most of it or to some crucial parts of these mysteries. When I talk about mysteries, I, you know, there's like, I think, 27 the Bible talks about. Uh, in, in Romans 11.25, we read about the mystery of Israel's blindness. How that when God, the Israel rejected their Messiah, God imposed on them a judicial blindness so that they really cannot see Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that blindness isn't complete in the sense that God is not letting any Jews be saved. But for the most part, the nation of Israel, you know, back in the land, and yet for the most part, a secular nation. They're not, they're not uh, uh, a spiritual people. There are some Orthodox Jews, of course. Most Jews are either atheists or agnostics, totally secular people. And, and that's because there's a blindness. And God has imposed this blindness, Paul tells us, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In other words, God is gathering for himself a Gentile bride. When that happens, the rapture takes place, boom. The blindness is lifted and God begins to turn back to Israel to be the instrument of beginning to save Jews and then sending them out with the gospel. Also, we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the mystery of the rapture. 
Now, resurrection was not hidden from the Old Testament saints. I mean, Job, the oldest book in the Bible says, I know my Redeemer lives, and someday He's going to stand upon the earth, and I know that even though I'm going to die and worms are going to eat this body, yet I know with these own eyes of mine, I'm going to see God. Well, he's talking about resurrection there. So resurrection was something that the Old Testament saints knew about. What they didn't know about was that at one point, God was going to rapture off the face of the earth what we call the church. That was hidden from them. They didn't see the church. The church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament saints. That at one point, God was going to snatch off the earth a generation of Christians who would not see death. They wouldn't have to be resurrected. They won't see death. Of course, you know, their bodies will be transformed uh, on the way up. Uh, God will give us our glorified bodies and so on. So that was a mystery from the Old Testament saints. And there are other mysteries. Jesus talked about the mystery form of the kingdom and the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. What does that mean? Basically that when Jesus came to present the kingdom to Israel because they rejected him, the leadership, the kingdom would not be coming outwardly. In other words, it wouldn't be a political kingdom. Not at his first coming. He wouldn't reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. That, was, you know, that wasn't going to happen because the nation had rejected him. But what would happen was that anybody who would receive him individually as king into their heart, the kingdom would come inside of them. Remember what Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. If you receive Christ into your heart as king, and you let him sit down on the throne of your heart, the kingdom of God, in mystery form, comes into your heart. And the joy, the peace, the love that's going to characterize the entire world during the kingdom age outwardly comes inside. And we are filled with the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, etc. These are the attributes of the kingdom that we experience inwardly because the kingdom comes inside in its mystery form until the king returns and establishes it outwardly. All right, so what about the mystery of God spoken of here? What are we talking about with this mystery? Well, this is the, this is the big enchilada, folks. This is, this is what Paul talked about in Ephesians 1, verse 10, when he talked about the culmination of all things that are in heaven, that are on earth, you know? This is the culmination of God's program for mankind, His redemptive program, the one that started in the Garden of Eden, where man fell and God came right after man's sin with a promise that someday Messiah was going to come and crush the serpent's head and would redeem us and so on. And someday when Messiah came, He would reverse the effects of the curse. He would set everything right again. Well, here we t- we're talking about the culmination of all of that where God is dealing with sin. He's judging the wicked. Of course, at Calvary's cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins. That anybody who would receive Him could be a part of the kingdom age. And of course, many will refuse to receive Christ. And so what's happening is God is now judging them, as we're reading about. But all this is leading up to the culmination, where Jesus Christ returns, establishes His kingdom, and then eventually on into the uh, eternal state, after we're through the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, we move into the eternal state. We live in New Jerusalem, in a new heavens, a new earth. Uh, and it's going to be a glorious time. But we're seeing the culmination. This is the culmination of, of all of this, the God's plan. And, um, of course, he did talk to, the, uh, to his prophets in the Old Testament about the kingdom age. He didn't reveal all of it. I mean, they had bits and pieces, and they've shared with us those things. But... 
God is now making things clear, you know, making things crystal clear. What they had kind of like in a shadow, we're seeing more clearly. Uh, and, of course, it, a lot of it is because the day we're living in, uh, we understand a lot of these prophecies when they couldn't possibly have understood because of the time that they lived in. But um, one of the aspects of the mystery of God that I think is uh, important to kind of touch on, and I'll just read Warren words because he's just one who kind of offered this um, insight, and I agree with it. He said, The mystery of God has to do with the age-old problem of evil in the world. Why is there both moral and natural evil in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it? Of course, the Christian knows that God did do something about it at Calvary when Jesus Christ was made sin and experienced divine wrath for the sinful world. We also know that God is permitting evil to increase until the world is ripe for judgment. The Bible tells us that. Since God has already paid the price for sin, he is free to delay his judgment and cannot be accused of injustice or unconcern. And, and, and the age-old question is, if God is good and God is, you know, if he's all good and all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Because if he was all good, he'd want to do something about it. If he was all powerful, he could do something about it. Because evil exists and God can't be either all good or all powerful. Now, on the face of it, it sounds like a pretty powerful argument. However, just because God doesn't do something about evil ultimately right now, doesn't mean he's not planning to in the future. And that's the idea. God is good. When he sent Jesus to die for our sins... God was beginning to then fulfill his plan. But the idea is that, as Peter said, God is very patient and long-suffering. He wants people to repent. That's why he has delayed his judgment. God is going to do something about sin. He is going to judge it. He has to. He's a righteous God. He cannot just look the other way. He's gracious, but at one point his grace comes to an end, and he is going to judge this world. That's what we're studying about right now. So God is going to do something about the problem of sin. What he's doing right now, though, he's trying to gather to himself a people who want to live with him in a kingdom of righteousness. A people that are sick of sin themselves. Not sin that they're just living with around them, but in them. And we long for the day where we can be glorified with our Lord and not have to deal with temptation or bad habits or things like that. There's coming a day when he's going to right all the wrongs man has done. And we look forward to that day. So that day is coming. Well, verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me... <laughs> and I'm thinking John probably said, Please, sir. Give, <laughs> it's a pretty big angel. You don't just walk up to a guy like that and go, Hey, give me that book. <laughs> Please, sir. Give, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will, be, it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Well, in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, Jeremiah said, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel had a similar experience as John is having here. In Ezekiel 2 verse 8, God said, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like, the rebe like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. 
Now, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. This is a reminds us of the little book that the angel gave John to eat. This little book containing the final judgments that are coming upon the world. As Ezekiel said, the little book that he ate contained writings, lamentations, and mourning, and woe. Woe is a word for judgment, all right? In chapter 3, verse 1, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Well, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, the Word of God is sweet, isn't it? Don't we enjoy just sitting with our Bibles and reading our Bibles? Isn't it sweet, you know, to read about how much God loves us and all the promises He's given to us in Christ, you know, and what is coming in the future, the kingdom, where there be no more tears and injustice, where Jesus is going to rule over the earth visibly from Jerusalem, over a kingdom of righteousness, and the earth is going to be restored to how it was before the flood. I mean, you're not going to have carnivorous animals. You're going to have lions and lambs and goats and all laying together, and nobody's going to be eating each other. And we think about that and read that. It's very sweet. You know, the Bible says, Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? But as we read about the time just prior to Jesus' return and the establishing of his kingdom, as we really begin to digest that, it kind of makes us sick to our stomachs, doesn't it? At what's coming. I mean, before we get to the place where Jesus returns and brings the kingdom, I mean, even though we're not going to be here for this period of judgment and all, It just gives you a sick feeling as you read Revelation and the rebellion of man. And after God brings many judgments, it says that man still refused to repent of his murders, his idolatries, his sorceries, etc. How hard is man's heart that after all of these judgments, he still shakes his defiant fist in God's face and says, I will not bow. I don't care what you do to me. I will not bow to your authority. I will be the captain of my ship. I mean, that's sickening. It's it's nauseating to think about that. All the judgments that man is going to have to endure, all because he refuses to repent and turn his life over to God. So, no, it's not all sweetness. It's a lot of bitterness. And Ezekiel, it wasn't until he ate the scroll... And it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach that he was able to then uh, share boldly with the people of his day because really he was kind of reticent. I mean, he was, I don't know if he was scared. I mean, it wasn't a popular message to, to preach repentance and all. But after he ate the scroll, it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. He, he got the courage to go out and to preach what God was telling him to these people. Because I think he probably, knowing what was coming, the judgment they were going to have to endure, it just motivated him to go out and be bold. 
I think that's the way we have to be. I mean, judgment is coming. When you read the book of Acts, and we've talked about this, but all the messages that were preached in the book of Acts that were recorded by Peter, then by Paul, do you know not one of them is based on the love of God? Do you realize that? When we evangelize, so often we want to make it all about God's love. And that's fine. I'd love to talk about God's love. But there comes a point when people get so hard-hearted that they don't really need to hear about God's love anymore. They need to hear about the coming wrath. They need to hear about judgment. Not that we have to say it in a very... Yeah, we shouldn't ever say it in a condemning way. We don't have to turn into hellfire and damnation preachers. We can speak the truth in love. But we need to speak the truth. That there is coming a day of wrath. And tomorrow was not promised to anybody. You might not be here tomorrow. You have not made peace with God by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are playing Russian roulette with your eternity because you don't know what tomorrow brings. Those folks that were Christmas shopping a few days ago out in Omaha, the farthest thing from their mind was that in a few moments they were going to be in eternity. You don't know. I hope they were all ready when they were gunned down. I hope they were all ready to meet their God. I don't know, though. And we need to understand that our loved ones are about to face a horrible reality if they do not repent. And maybe that should give us the boldness to be a little more verbal. Pray about it. Sometimes, you know, you can only say so much and then you have to just pray. And maybe you've come to that point. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe you can say some more. But pray and ask God. Because you can only share the truth. You can't force them to receive it. All right? And you can't badger anybody into the kingdom. That's for sure. But make sure that you've said all you can say. And so in verse 11, he said to me, You must prophesy, speaking to John. John, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And of course, through the remaining revelation that the Lord gave to John, which he wrote down, he did prophesy to the people of this world. And of course, every new generation reads what John wrote. And they are warned. They are informed. I think, as I've said before, the generation that's going to appreciate what John wrote more than any other is the generation that's going to be the most relevant to. The tribulation generation. You know, I mean, they're going to really be studying Revelation because they're going to be in it. And obviously, the things that John wrote are going to be, for many, uh, a real source of information and all. All right, well, chapter 11, we're still in this parentheses, right? We're still in this, this kind of a break. The place is Jerusalem. The time is the first half of the tribulation. Remember what we said, we're kind of going back, recapping, zeroing in, amplifying something that's already going on. So in chapter 11 now, we're going to focus on the first half of the tribulation period. Israel is worshiping again in the restored, rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. You have a group of Orthodox Jews that are worshiping God again through the sacrificial system. You have the Antichrist that has rebuilt the temple for the Jews, but has not yet shown his true character at this point. So, uh, you know, he hasn't taken the uh, the sheep outfit off. He's, uh, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but he hasn't revealed himself for who he is yet. But in verse 1 it says, uh, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, John tells us. The Greek word is kalamas. 
and it is a word used of measuring of um, a measuring rod. It refers to a reed-like plant that uh, grew in the Jordan Valley, and it grew about to be about 15 to 20 feet high. It was hollow, but it was still rigid enough where it was could be used as a, a walking staff. But because it was light and grew to be, you know, 15, 20 feet, they would use it to measure things with. So they would cut it into a maybe a 15 or a 20-foot length, and then they would use it to then uh, measure off things. In fact, in uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43, I should say, an angel used one of these exact reeds to measure the, the temple in the millennial kingdom. So it was used quite a bit for these things. But John said, I was given one of these, these reeds, this measuring rod, And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. The Greek word for temple is naos, and it doesn't refer to the whole temple complex, because it was a big, under Herod, it was a big area. It refers to the temple proper, the holy place, the holy of holies, and then right outside, you had the brazen altar of sacrifice, so that was included as well. But just that immediate place, okay, not the whole under Herod, the whole, I don't know how many acres he had this whole temple complex. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. Day by day.